brought uh, five this morning. I have a number. This is not even half of uh, my axe collection. This is my favorite axe. It's a Swedish limbing axe. Um, I can process a canopy of a tree and a brush with this faster than a chainsaw. It's, it's cut narrow, and it just—you can cut through a four-inch branch. It just—if just, you have the right swing, it just takes it apart. It's a beautiful tool. You can, I don't know if you know this, but you can take a class in Sweden, go for a week, and they'll teach you how to build a house with little more than a good axe. And um, there's a couple things important about getting the right axe head. Um, it goes through a process of forging where, of course, they shape it, and they put the, the, uh, the hole for hafting in it and all that. Um, but there's a point in the process where they heat it up to a certain temperature, and then they cool it at that temperature. It's called forging, or I'm sorry, it's called tempering the steel. And the idea there is to harden the steel at just the right hardness. Now you might think, well, of course the right hardness is as hard as it can possibly be, right? I mean, it's an axe. Like, you want to cut stuff. Like, what's the, why, right? But the problem is, is if you make metal too hard, it gets brittle. And you hit something, and the whole thing can just shatter. You hit, hit something that's a little frozen, it'll just chip a big piece off of it. You actually don't want it too hard. And also, you have to file it with a metal file to sharpen it in most cases, and you don't want it to be as hard as the metal file, or you'll be there a while. You know what I'm saying? So you don't want it to be too hard or it's brittle, but if it's too soft, it'll dent, it'll bend. It's unusable as a tool. There's like, there's a, there's a sweet spot, which is pretty narrow, that's just hard enough that it won't bend, it won't dent, and just soft enough that you can sharpen it, and it won't, it won't break. That idea of tempering steel, from which we also get the word temperature, right, is the same idea um, of the virtue of temperance which is spread all through the Bible as one of the most important human virtues that can be developed through faith. Now, we don't talk about it much. In fact, as I say it, some of you might think, Nick, isn't that one of like the Greek and Roman virtues? Like Christianity is like faith, hope, and love, and then the the Greeks were like temperance, fortitude, courage, and whatever else, right? And that's actually not really true. I mean, in some ways, it's true that, um, that the Greeks talked about those and the Romans talked about them. But, you know, temperance shows up, a failure, a major failure in temperance shows up in Genesis 4 right? Cain is filled with the internal turmoil of his resentment towards Abel, right? And God comes to him and says, Cain, listen, I see all that turmoil inside you. I see all that anxiety. I see all that resentment. I see all those problems. Sin is in you, and it wants to master you. It wants to override your will, take control of you, and get you to do stuff you know you shouldn't do, and you have to master it. You have to find a way through self-control, through changing the way you think about it, through faith, through trusting me. You got to figure out a way, right? And what God was calling to do was, just do what's right. Instead of hating your brother for doing what's right, why don't you do what's right? And then you won't hate him as much, right? And instead of doing that, Cain lets his resentment, his emotions control his behavior, and he actually kills his own brother, right? What's that a failure of? Well, a lot of things. But one of the things is a failure of temperance, and you see that all through Scripture, people acting rashly rather than out of faith in all kinds of situations that are stressful or anxious, and they do things they should have never done because they can't walk the line between being so hard that they're brittle or being too soft that they bend. They can't find the path. They can't find that balance that makes them useful. Does that make sense? And that virtue, being able in many circumstances, through faith and the development of godliness, to be like Jesus so as to be useful, is something that has to be a major focus of Christian life, because it's only by means of temperance that we're going to be able to love. Because doing what is in the true good of another person requires that we can make ourselves do what is good first. 
Now, you might think that that's not a huge thing in Scripture, but actually, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is the requirements of an elder, that is somebody who should be, is an exemplary Christian, right? As you go through the characteristics of eldership, turns out quite a number of them are specifically focused on temperance or some relationship to it. So, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, 2 and 3 says this, Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Now think about that. Almost all of those are versions of temperance. Now one of the words literally is temperance. But all of those are that the person is tempered and he knows how to deal with stuff, right? So he's tempered in his, in his sensuality, right? He's the husband of one wife. He's a one-woman man, right? He knows how to be devoted to a woman and not be devoted to the wrong woman, right? He knows how to be temperate of temper. That there's no outbursts of anger. He can control his temper because he's temperate, right? He's temperate in his indulgences, right? He's not given to drunkenness. He can drink alcohol. That's perfectly fine according to the scriptures, right? But he knows what drunkenness is. He knows that it makes one intemperate. He knows where to stop. He knows where to start. He knows where to stop, right? He's not quarrelsome, right? When he interacts with people he has a conflict with, right? He knows how to stand up, say what's true, put forward his point, listen to the other person, but not get so argumentative as to create a quarrel so that now you have a fight which is creating relational problems and disunity problems and is not working for the good anymore. He knows how to be disagreeable well. He's not quarrelsome. All of these characteristics are driven by the overall ethic and virtue of temperance. And in most times, the world and the flesh are going to encourage and move Christians and push them usually in the opposite direction of what is immediately most needful. So if you look at our present moment, and you look at the voice of worldliness in our culture, and you look at some of our own desires about how we want to react and, and, and reach out and be quarrelsome ourselves, our, our culture is saying, is like, listen, the stakes are too high to be temperate. You have to attack those other people. Those other people are your enemy. If they don't say what you, even, even if they don't say anything, they don't say what you want them to say, that's violence and that's wrong. If you, they didn't vote like you, they're the enemy. If they don't think like you, the enemy. If they don't wear a mask the way you want them to, or if they do wear a mask when you don't think they should, they're the enemy. And you can say whatever you want. You can type whatever you want. You can tweet whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. You can do whatever you want to make sure the bad guys don't win. And that is in the ascendancy in America as much as it's ever been in my lifetime. And I'm getting old. Er. And oftentimes, it is literally the opposite of what the culture and what the world is saying. This is the virtue of our moment. Oftentimes, it is literally the opposite that is the true virtue of the moment. In almost any of the problems that we're facing, and what I'll call in just a second the tides of anxiety flowing over us, what they all require is the people of God to hold to a temperance. To be forged by God, to be wise enough to chart the course and to not be either brittle or bending so as to be useful to God and not be used by people who want to manipulate us. There's four—actually, um, before I say that, um, you can see this all through the mystery of Jesus, too. If you observe it, and you're not just looking for the word temperance, but you're looking for the right balance in every moment, you'll see it all through the life of Jesus. One of the most powerful examples of it is actually in the crucifixion. If you look at um, 
at Luke 23:34. Let me see if I can find this slide. Um, right at the place where, where Jesus says, so he's being crucified, and, he, and while he's being crucified, he, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, right? It goes through, and it, it, lay, it lists a number of different places where people are doing things particularly to taunt Jesus. They're, they're, they're instigating him. They're like, they're trying to get him to do something. Now, they don't think he can do anything, but they're taunting him to do something. So imagine this. You're in the process of being murdered, and people are playing a game with dice to decide who gets your clothing. I mean, think about the insult to injury of that. You're not even dead yet. And they're like, who gets his stuff? Let's do it right in front of him. Right? Or um, people just standing and just watching. Like, you dying is a good show. And then other people just openly sneering at him while he's up there. Taunting him in like three different times. If you, if you could save yourself, why don't you do it? Why don't you, if, you're, if you're the Christ, just save yourself. Right? Mocking him, sneering at him. All the, in all these situations, Jesus' attitude is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's his attitude. That is the perfect attitude of temperance. Right? He's not weak. They are doing something. They are doing something horrifically wicked. They are murdering the Son of God. They could not be more wicked, and he doesn't pretend they're not being wicked. They are being wicked. Right? That's why he says they don't know what they're doing, because he knows what they're doing, and it's horrific. But the grounds of forgiveness is he doesn't believe that they're sensible enough of it, and he has mercy for them as one who is far stronger than them, so that his temperance, right, saves us. His being torn apart can create in us enough faith so that we can hold ourselves together. Now, in this present moment, there's what I'm just going to call four tides of anxiety that tend to lead to intemperance, right? When we act intemperately, it's usually because of some other internal motivation we're not, we're not handling, right? And so there's four what I'll call tides of anxiety. The first is um, facing the crisis of government power, right? This is one of the moments in our lifetime where um, we are being told to do by the government um, things that we're not used to being told to do. And also, there's a lot of disagreement as to whether or not the government should be telling us to do these things in the wider culture, but also within the church. The second is facing change in the digital age. A lot of things, including the way we do work, the way we interact with each other, are changing dramatically in the digital age, as radically as the invention of the printing press. It's completely changing human life. It's changing the way our brains work, the way we think, the way we remember things, how we recognize our value. All kinds of things are being radically changed during this moment of time. What people do for a living is completely changing, and it's very destabilizing for human beings. It's destabilizing more than anything for laborers or, or, um, or, and a lot of actually knowledge workers' jobs are going away, and then also for teenagers and adolescents. All right, the third is um, facing the failure of those we trust. One of the things that can create anxiety is when you, you look to somebody who's leading you that you really trust, and then they really dramatically fail you. That's happened a number of times this year. It's going to happen more, not less, right? As things get more difficult, there's more anxiety, more weight is put on leaders, and more resources are drawn back away from churches. We're going to see more Christian leaders failing and failing dramatically. And if your faith is built on them and their faithfulness, you're going to lose your faith. It's going to wreck you. And then fourth, facing the squeeze of no-win factionalism. You're going to find yourself in situations 
where people are going to tell you what you have to say and be, and two different groups are going to tell you what you have to do, and you can't possibly please them both. You're in a no-win situation, and both sides are pretty substantial. And it's going to put you in a really difficult situation, and it's going to create anxiety because you want to please people. Everybody wants to please people. Everybody wants people to not be mad at them, and everybody wants to be at peace. And we're entering a time period—I mean, we're in a time period, but it's going to get worse where you just can't please people. And if you don't understand the, the preeminence of pleasing God over men, it will really hurt you. Okay, so I want to go through these quickly. The first is, is that temperance faces crises in authority with clarity and respect. For this, I'm going to talk about mainly in relationship to government. I'm going to get to racial equity in the fourth point a little bit, but this applies to that too. And that is that um, the, the Christian Bible, Jesus' example, and all of revealed scripture has a fairly complicated view of how believers are supposed to respond to government. Government is called both a grace, right, and a tragedy in the Bible. Right? In 1 Samuel, it says government is a terrible thing. It's just going to take and take and take from you. It will, by necessity, become corrupt and um, overweening and all that, right? And then in Romans 13, it says that government is a good grace of God that is a blessing that he ordains that is for our good. And both of those are true at the same time. And in Scripture, it says that we should give authority and honor to people who are in charge in governmental situations, and that they have a certain amount of right authority, and that there are a number of times in the Bible where Jesus stands up to governmental powers, tells them that they're acting illegitimately. The apostles tell them they're acting illegitimately. And in certain cases, um, both Jesus and the apostles outright disobey the government and say, I'm sorry, I have to obey God rather than men. And the dynamic of when to do those things and how those are balanced and what they mean and how does that work is not profoundly simple. And so therefore, when the attitude Christians should have towards government in multiple different kinds of situations is going to be varied and it's going to cause some disagreement when the answer is not ridiculously obvious. And, and human nature makes it so it's almost never really obvious for us. For example, there were a lot of Christians that didn't think disobeying the government was obvious in like 1939 to 42 in Germany under Hitler. They didn't think it was obvious that Hitler had forfeited his right to tell them what to do, right? Only the confessing church did. And only a part of the confessing church believed that they should act in outright defiance and hiding Jews, right? And some people were like, oh yeah, we got to do this, Right? There are some Christians in America who don't think that Chinese Christians should meet together in defiance of the government. They think that they should obey their lack of a right to gather together under leaders they choose as spiritual leaders indefinitely. Right? That's entered into our discussion in America. How long is legitimate in America for health reasons that are real? How long is it okay to do what we're doing, or to not meet at all. There's some churches that haven't met and aren't going to meet at all, may not even meet in 2021, right? Our church has kind of been, had a foot in both places because we've tried really hard to act with temperance and prudence. So in some, when COVID first started, we closed the church, right? Over time, we tried to open some small groups. Then we were doing this, right? Meanwhile, when the government said you have to close your schools, we had to make a, we had to make a choice whether or not to obey or whether or not to redress the government through a lawsuit. We chose to redress the government through a lawsuit and, and won a preliminary injunction and the schools have been open. 
And we've proved that you can have school without outbreaks because none of the schools have had outbreaks of COVID. It's gone really well, right? And hopefully that means that the students under our care will not lose 40 to 70% of the education capacity for a year because online education does not work that well. I mean, imagine yourself at seven. How would you have done? Right? And that was a cho- we had to make these choices. Those are very difficult choices. Now, here's the thing to, I want to say about this. I've been very pleased as your pastor at how we have remained pretty unified as a church because this is a church with a lot of education and a lot of opinions. And it's one of the most diverse, ideologically diverse churches I know of in Madison. Most of the pastors I know, their church is either profoundly conservative and they think Trump is going to save us and like, like every, people are in pro- profound, predominant agreement or they're very, have very progressive con- congregations and they're very agreed about that. And this church is not like that. Like I try to offend everybody. I try not to humiliate anybody. And I, I want our church to be diverse. And um, it's not, and it's not because I believe every view is equally valid. I think that there are lots of silly views and views that are wrong. But the point is, is that I don't, I try to intellectually bully people only with the truth directly from the scriptures and not otherwise. And so we have Democrats and Republicans and conservatives and, and liberals and libertarians and people who, who are very cautious and people who are quite optimistic and all kinds of different people. And for the most part, what I've seen in this church is people being like, here's my opinion. I know you have to make a choice. And I respect that. Right? Down to doctor, I had a doctor write me at the very beginning to say, listen, if you open the church, you're going to force me to choose who gets a ventilator and who doesn't in the ICU. And I'm going to be choosing who lives and who dies. Please don't open the church. Right? Two, people saying, listen, if if the church goes along with all these lockdowns, it will destroy our economy. It will destroy the business of people who've spent decades building a livelihood for themselves. It will ruin the progress people have made economically for themselves and their employees and for their children and for generations to come. Like, how would you like to sit in your office and be making decisions like that? And people wanting you to be the firebrand of protest. Right? And yet— All the way along the line, we've had to make decisions, we've made decisions, and what I've seen is, for the most part, people saying their opinion where they felt like they needed to say it, and then people standing in unity with each other as Jesus would want them to. And I've been pretty proud of our church, I've been pretty proud of us in recognizing how to speak up, how to tell the truth, right, and how to—but how to recognize that we live in a community where sometimes the only thing we share in common is our humanity in Jesus and very few views, and that's difficult. And I'm, I, I feel like we've actually, as a church, responded pretty um, responsibly to it. I'm going to skip some of this stuff because I'm running out of time already. Um, so the, the second thing is, I think we can overcome— temperance can help us overcome the tide of ch- in change. It can make us versatile and durable. If you, if you think about um, an axe, <clears throat> if I leave this axe outside for 50 years, okay, whoever finds the head will find it pitted and rusted. But if they grind it down and they put some oil on it, they'll be pitting, but they can sharpen it and it'll work. And in our culture, with the anxiety and things that we face, we, we are going to face what I'll just call um, emotional overexposure. Um, the nature of our society right now is that we as human beings really aren't made to be exposed to as much negativity as we are. Um, I I think right now I was told that 70% of Americans are online 100% of the time. 
That is, that we're, they're within arm's reach of a device connected to the internet that they either are using or can immediately use and be notified about something 100% of the time. Okay? And through that device, it is a porthole to, fe- to hear about all the negativity happening in a world with multiple billions of people. And the human mind was not created to do that. God's mind does that. God's mind can know everything in the world, everything that's going wrong, everything that's negative about it, everything that needs to be regulated under his sovereignty, every bit of it, and he can know it all at the same time, and it doesn't make him anxious. It's not a surprise. He knows exactly what to do, and it's his responsibility, and it's not yours. God never asked you to have empathy for everything going wrong with everybody in the world. The human mind can't do that. It's destructive, and it's violent to your psychology, and you shouldn't be attempting to do it. That's not how empathy works. Empathy is for the person who's literally right in front of you. What ha- what's happening to us is, if, um, there's, there's a bunch of research on this out, that by every measurement, Americans are more anxious every year and more anxious than we've ever been. Like, by a lot. Psychological disorders that are diagnosable relative to anxiety are five times what they used to be. Right? Um, you can go through a lot of these things. Um, in, in 2017, in one month, um, Barnes & Noble sold 25% more books on anxiety than they'd ever sold before. Two-thirds of people in um, one set of surveys said they, they were either very anxious or quite anxious about a number of things going on in their life. And the next year when they did it, it had already risen 5%. Right? It's, and it's not just psychological anxiety disorders, stuff that, you know, like, we'll give you medication, you'll be fine kind of stuff. But, like, everybody has more anxiety. And more anxiety than is, than is helpful or useful or that you should have to bear. And some of it is, is are things like just um, weird ways about looking at the world. But some of it is our changes in the structures of our lives. So, for example, when—now, uh, Research on why people feel anxious is a lot more difficult than whether they feel anxious. It's easy to ask somebody or try to find out if they're they're feeling anxious. Figure out really why, because anxiety is almost by definition a fear you can't name. Like you don't—oftentimes people don't really know exactly why they feel anxious, or they think they know, but it's not the real reason, right? But one of the things that—these are not pastors that have come up with these. These are researchers, and they're like, this is what it seems like as we talk to people, right? One, people are more focused on extrinsic goals. We're becoming more materialistic. And, and you can't really control your materialistic success as much as you'd like to think, right? You can control whether or not you become a godly person, whether or not you really love the other people that are in your life, whether or not you're a good neighbor. You can control all those things, and you can live up to the thing you feel like you need to live up to. But if for your life to be worthwhile, you need to be wealthy, you can't really control that. Most wealthy people are not just smart and diligent. They also, they also have found an opportunity at some point that they couldn't have planned on. There's a podcast coming out soon where I interviewed Dave Gary, who's the owner of the Princeton Clubs, Christian, Christian guy. And he'll tell you that, like, he worked hard, he tried to be smart, but, like, there were a couple of moments where stuff, like, fell in his lap. And he was able to just scoop it up. Right? And that's true for a lot of people who are very wealthy. Most people, to be wealthy, think like immigrants. You just got to save your money. And Americans don't do that because we're materialistic, right? Also, um, th- there's been a loss of a meaningful philosophy of life. 
People don't have a coherent philosophy. And that's not only tearing us internally apart, it's actually culturally tearing us apart. Because there's not enough of that we agree on in terms of a shared worldview, right? We're not all— like, there was a while where America wasn't Christian, but it was, like, Christianly haunted, right? There was a, there was a kind of cultural Christianity about the assumption of human worth, human value, and certain ideas about human morality that were rooted in Christianity, even if you didn't believe in Christianity. And there was a relative consensus about that, and that consensus is pretty much gone. And so that makes us anxious inside because we don't have a ruling governing philosophy in our hearts, but it also makes us socially more anxious because we don't have enough that we agree on that I know how you're going to act towards me, and you know how I'm going to act towards you. Right? Another is loneliness. A couple of decades ago, much fewer people lived alone than they do now. Way more people live alone now. Older people, younger people, reclusive people, all kinds of different people live alone that didn't used to live alone. And it, it turns out, it turns out like too much solitude just isn't good for anybody, even if you're really introverted. Like people say that all the time. But introversion just means like um, you're better off with like a couple people that are close to you. It doesn't mean you don't like humans. If you don't like humans at all, you've been hurt. That's not a temperament. Do you understand? And, and so in the epidemic of loneliness, that's producing or increasing the epidemic of anxiety and so on, right? Our use of social media, I already talked about this a little bit, is crazy. How much we attend to what other people think of us or trying to get other people to think certain things of us is really, really unhelpful. And it is catastrophically bad for teenagers, and it's even worse for teenage girls. What you're just, you're just opening a portal of negativity to blow acid in your face all day long. And we do it because there are certain ways in which it scratches a kind of primal itch that we have to feel like we matter or something's happening around us, but it's actually terrible for you. It's like just drinking Coke all day long. It feels good, but you're not going to have any teeth, and you're going to have a lot of middle ground. You know? And there's also ways in which, like, for adults, like, there's some adults that, like, they have cable news on, like, all day long, or they just, they, like, they want to know the news. You basically don't need to know what the news is saying, okay? Can, can I just say this out loud? Like, there, there are, like, weekly digests that you can get. Like, read a historical book. Like, read, like, you're better off reading Plato's Nicomedian Ethic, or Aristotle's Nicomedian Ethics, than watching the news. Almost none of it will be history. It's, all of it is pre-selected for you. It's not, like, the most relevant things that happen in the world. It's the stuff that, like, people in the news bumped into, that they've curated for you, that makes you the most anxious so that you will watch their show. And then they do the monologues where they tell you stuff that will make you the maddest, that's clearly not even true by the evidence they show you in the monologue if you're paying attention. Like, I cannot tell you how many people have sent me Tucker Carl Carlson monologues where the things he quotes in the monologue doesn't even prove the stuff he says in the monologue. And I think, for God's sakes, you guys, like, he may even be right about some of this stuff, but his proof—if you can't even prove it with a, like, selectively edited quote that you pulled out of somewhere that's out of context, like, you got problems. How dumb are we? For God's sake! And we just, we just eat this like we're at Thanksgiving and we just can't get up like tryptophan and wine like so we can just fall asleep and not feel anything anymore. It's like, it's, it's killing us. And because we, we live so untempered, right? We're so given in the softness of our character to our primal desires. We're like, yes, video game. Yes, angry news guy. Yes, like, do you like me on social media? Yes, like, like, just make me feel good, make me feel good, make me feel good, because I have no core. I have no fountain of the springs of living water. I have no interest in God. 
And we have to correct course on this. We have to pursue God in such a way as to grow in temperance by observing the character of Jesus, by learning the truths of Scripture. Because if we can, what we'll find is, is that we can be flexible in the present, modern in the right senses, and yet um, more functional in the old ways that are not old. I don't know if I said this already, but um, I can process a tree faster with this than a chainsaw. Because I know how to use it. I know exactly how it functions. And it's better. Because I, I, it turns out I have arms that move. And when I'm one with this tool, I can move so fast and I can work through something. It's an extension of me. I know how to use it. I'm tempered to it. No matter how long I ever use a chainsaw, even though it's an advanced piece of machinery with now microchips in it, it just can't do it as fast. Even though it's much more advanced technologically. The same is true spiritually and morally. Almost all the spiritual and moral dynamics in our world right now that are new, first of all, they're not new. Relativism, radicalism, overweening conservatism, all of these isms, all of these sorts of things, they're all from the ancient world. They've all existed as long as human beings have existed. They've all been tested, and they've all been found wanting over and over and over again. We just don't know any history. In addition to that, when Christian faith is applied, when we grow in the temperance of Christ, what we find is, is that there's newer stuff, but it just doesn't cut as well. But the axe head of your faith has to be tempered. Or you're swinging a blob and you wonder why it doesn't cut. You have no idea what you're capable of. The strength that Christ can temper in you and the love that you'll be able to deliver to people in what they truly need. And the example of that temperance is right there in the story of Jesus. It's on every page. It's right there in the lives of the apostles. It's right there in their teachings over and over again, and all these things. I mean, think about, think about these things. How many of these problems of, anxi of anxiety does Jesus and the, and the apostles talk about? Right? If we just like marginally pay attention to Christian faith, it directly, substantially, in, on every page, talks about every one of these. Jesus specifically died to answer those questions and, and not many others. <laughs> the, the very questions that are wrecking the modern American human heart, that when we don't know, we're admitting our irreligion is killing us, we're admitting that our irreligion is killing us. The very things that are causing us to come apart from within, to literally not be able to master our own human bodies, selves, and beings, are exactly the questions Jesus poured out his lifeblood, spoke out his teaching, and exemplarily lived among us to answer. So that you could have the peace of God, and so that that would make it infinitely easier for you to be temperate in your choices and in your actions and in your decisions. Now, I, I'm out of time, so I'm not going to talk about when leaders fail us, but it's the same dynamic. Or when we are in no-win situations, like, for example, in the um, racial equity stuff we're dealing with. Like, there's no way to win that, right? If you want to please people. There's no way to win the racial justice discussion 
in what you do or what you say if your goal is to please people. If your goal is to please God and to love your neighbor, there are things we can do. We can find ways to do that. We can partner with other minority Christians who we trust, who are working hard. We can talk with them. We can figure out what to do. We can partner with people. We can try stuff. So what if people aren't pleased by it? We don't care, remember? All we care about is pleasing the Lord, being part of the loving unity of the body of Christ, and to give our neighbors what they truly need as we love them, whether they like it or not, whether they appreciate it or not, whether they recognize it as love or not. We have to know who we are. If you don't know who you are, everything will make you anxious. But if you know who you are in Christ, if you really do know that, if you know the shape in which he's formed you and the purpose for which he's tempered you, you'll be useful in his hands. You'll be filled with purpose. You'll know your significance. And you will, much more than otherwise, triumph over the floods of anxiety that are all around us. God, um, will you please help us in this year of coming to commit ourselves to growing in the maturity of Christ, to have our minds renewed, to understand what you're calling us to, to not be so gullible to the traps of the enemy leading us, even through truths to intemperate actions towards our neighbors and towards those that you've put us in the family of God with. And will you help us to be useful in your hand and fruitful towards our neighbors and honoring towards you. And I pray that you would work a peace and a excitement in us that we can know what we're for and who we're for and that we can live with peace in our hearts rather than just anxiety fear, and hopelessness. Help us even now as we sing these songs to focus ourselves on you, on your truth, on pleasing you, on loving you, on being self-forgetful. In Jesus' name.